Hi, friends. Just a reminder that sometimes we curse on the show. If you're with someone who you might not want to hear that, you know, turn us on later. We won't be mad. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Tell six. us about I waking had up this morning. a little dreidel. I made it out of clay. Is that right? Yeah, what happens good? when it's dry and ready? <laughs> <laughs> then it will be the end of Europe. Oh, God. Right. Hello, Jews and their Facebook friends. This is Unorthodox. I'm Stephanie Butnick, joined this week by Liel Leibowitz. Ahalan wa And back by popular demand, Shira Tolushkin. Good morning. Winner of Unorthodox, The Voice. Yes, this is The Unorthodox. Mark Oppenheimer is in Los Angeles, sneaking into movies without paying and doing other things we don't know about. We've got two great guests. That, by the way, is is like a capital offense in L.A. That's like not giving a suggested donation at a yoga studio. You're literally taking away their (laughs) livelihood. The person who like takes your ticket was like the sound man for the movie. And he's also like your waiter later on at the restaurant. So we've got two great guests today. They are both return guests. Our Jewish guest is journalist Jamie Kerchik, whose new book is... The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. It's pretty uplifting stuff. Um, our Dental of the Week is Iranian-American Muslim comedian Nagin Farsad, who was named one of the funniest women of 2015 by Huffington Post. I have to say, she's still funny, even after 2015. Even in 2017. Yes. Even, still, it's, that's, still amuses Yes. I love um, how we try to do light summer programming. Yeah, no, it's something just nice and easy. Islamophobia <laughs> and the end of Europe. And Mark is just like conveniently gone for this. Hello, um, Jews. Hello, it's Jews. another Holocaust. Welcome. More importantly, I'm back in charge, which means mo- enough of my relatives wrote in requesting this. So I'm really, and so Mark just like, you know, took a little vacay. Well, tell us about the baby. He's so cute. He's He just turned one month and he's rolling over like several times um, on purpose. I mean, I mean, not on purpose, but he's just like a child prodigy. Babies, I feel like never get old. Especially when you like, <laughs> I mean, until, until until they're no longer babies. Oh, <laughs> I forgot about that part. Speaking of light programming for you guys, next week is camp week. So we'll be yes. like very, very uplifting and like wearing bug spray and things like that. So that's going to be really, really fun. Did you guys go to camp? I was prom queen when I was 11 at Camp Monroe. Um, my first week, I made my parents come up because I sent them home a letter that I was so miserable and shocked because there was a girl in my bunk who told me she her family ate plain bread on Pesach. And uh, 11-year-old oh Shira was so scandalized. So scandalized. Are you there, God? It's me, Shira. <laughs> my parents will never forget this. They like ran up to camp. <laughs> my dad's actually sitting here in the studio. So if I could see him, I'm sure he'd, he's laughing. I can see him. He's, he's smiling. <laughs> he's, he's liking this. He's looking on supportively. <laughs> but like literally they like came up to camp and the first thing I said to them was like, wait, did you get my second letter? <laughs> we were like, I'm having the best time ever. I'm going to be prom queen. Well, you know, it, it wasn't like, so Mom, dad, that. bacon is delicious. <laughs> Liel, what's like the camp experience in Israel? Are uh, you going to say it's the army? Very different. I, pretty much. No, but even look, um, I, I joined a, a youth movement, as they're called in Israel, the Scouts, which is a paramilitary organization. I like that even youth movements there are paramilitary. Oh, no, it's 100%. <laughs> it's like, you will wear a uniform and we will train you. be a you scout and we're going to send you to war. Weapons. Um, I just loved any opportunity that got me the fuck out of my home. And so it was basically like, okay, here, go somewhere for three months and just like be out in this in this forest and fend for yourself. I, I really liked it. Do you think but it was, it like was w- very, there was no prom. There was like, do you want to eat? Then find something to eat. <laughs> and that is the prom. That's the prom. Do you feel There's like... There's more Hunger Games than, you know. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's like pre-trend, which is nice. Was it like they dropped you somewhere and then just like let you 
figure out how to get back. Well, the insane part is that, like, literally the kids did everything. So my job, my junior year of high school, was to be in charge of a kitchen that fed 1,700 kids. And so, and by in charge, I mean 100% in charge. Like, you sign in for the stuff, make sure it's refrigerated, what? come up with recipes, like, disseminate it. And if you don't, then 1,700 young children Starve. do not eat. So that, that sounds so more hardcore. like British camp, right? So yeah. Jews in Britain have, you know how, like, your most obsessed camp Rama friend, who you just feel like camp was, like, this weird paradise and it sounds like a cult? That's, like, every British Jew. And similarly, you have 16-year-olds in charge of, like, 11-year-olds, where one of the tasks that they do is it's like drop them off in the middle of a forest with like no phones, no money, no anything, and like have them get back to you at like some other that's point. Right. Is this that's called what Camp, Jamie's book is about? That, that's called Camp Corbin. They oh. drop Jews in the middle of the woods and hopefully they don't come back. Oh boy. Yeah, no, this is gonna be a hardcore. Wait, day I thought now. camp I, but at least I thought Camp Week was gonna be fun. Like our, our discussion about Camp oh, Week would be guys, uplifting. Guys, but we went really dark no, no. right away. Yeah. We're not going dark on camp. People have these like sacred camp memories. Camp is amazing. Camp is like a sacred Jewish ritual for sure. The number of songs I know with like misremembered lyrics oh, yeah. that are go the blue team instead of the actual yeah. chorus. Every is Richard Mark song basically is basically like, every ruined. song in the nineties. Guys, we got some news of the Jews. Um Gal Gadot's husband, your own Varsano broke Instagram after posting a picture of himself wearing the most amazing shirt. It was a t-shirt and on one side it had like the bathroom icon for a woman and it said your wife and then there was like a greater than and then it said my wife and there was a picture of Wonder Woman. It was great. We should include it in the newsletter. Yeah. There's and no way around that. He just, he just, everyone yeah. just loved it. I'm seeing it Thursday night. I'm really excited. There's like 15 of us going out after my Greek class. So... I loved it. Mark saw it. So we'll hear about it when he gets back. And the I question is, too. did he well, buy a ticket? Well, Mark did not purchase. We'll find out. Legally purchase the ticket. And Gal Gadot's husband, you know, we've talked about her Instagram being very proud of her Israeli heritage. His Instagram is all just like pictures of them on Purim dressed up. It's really, really cute. God bless. Really cute. And speaking of Israel, or not speaking of Israel, see what I did there? A theater festival uh, for elementary students in New Zealand removed the word Israel from their production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Sort of like an important word if you're going to do sing, that. Do you want to sing well, the song? It was from one song. It was from the Close Every Door. Yeah, which you want, you I was not allowed to sing at Camp Remarks. I didn't get the part. Very devastating. Well, Shira, now's your moment. Wow, it's really not going to pass. Close every door on. You want to do it together? But, no. And then, but, and then there's a part that says the children what, of Israel are never right. Right. Actually, and, no, and the children of, of kindness. kindness. Right. And now so what they, they did is the right. So they changed the children of Israel to the children of kindness. Tim Rice has come out to bat on Twitter. I feel like he gets a lot of applause for just, and he's been like following up with this story. But literally, the lyrics are: "The children of Israel are never alone, for we have been promised a land of our own." Like, yeah, Tim Rice knew it was about Israel. Like, it is about Israel. Israel. Keep it in the song. You know why? Like, because it's the story of right. Joseph. <laughs> you can't really get around it. I like that a land of own. It's like the original room of one's own. Yeah. For the children of kindness. Um, Tim Rice is actually referring to the incident as Joseph Gate and like is is continuing to tweet about it. But this really, this I think is such a beautiful manifestation of the absolute, it's a mental disease, this, this, this 
you know, not just, you know, anti-Semitism, which obviously is fucked up, but just this like political, you know, well, the idea that Israel is regressive an offensive liberal term. stance right. and like, oh, Israel, we don't want to touch that because right. that is like, don't offend anyone. They're like, they're like, oh, it's, con- I mean, what I think is so depressing, guys, we're in the middle of nowhere, New Zealand. Like, have they ever met? This is like Shakespeare writing anti-Semitism after the Jews have been expelled if from I may, England. We're in the middle but, of New Zealand, the most oppressive country to its indigenous population in the history of the modern what's world. What's so depressing about this is how much Israel has just like lost the public moral battle where people who like may not even think about this issue for more than two minutes just instinctively know oh Israel that's like clearly on the moral bad side right New Zealand tell that to the Maori population you've been fucking over like no one's business for 110 years but the show must go on and I think it will have the original lyrics and all the songs in it they decided to pull the song at the end and Tim Rice was like nah you got to do the full show or nothing yeah but here in New York City, Rabbi Amichai Lau Levi is cutting ties with the Rabbinical Assembly, the rabbinic arm of the conservative movement, over its prohibition on conservative rabbis performing interfaith weddings. He said he kept wondering, how do rabbis not become bouncers? Each story was unique. I couldn't bear saying no. So he's left. He's left the fold. What do we think, guys? Oh, Lordy. I know sure. Amichai. He's amazing. He's a Amichai great guy. is amazing. Sure, I'm actually... I'm actually curious here, with, as as the daughter of a of a very prominent American rabbi, who is sitting right outside, listening sitting right, right outside, now, judging us. Hey, Dad. Uh, how how do you how do you, how do, where do you stand on this issue? On questions of intermarriage. Yes, ma'am. I'll say this. For a long time, I thought if your Jewish identity is so important to you, how could you connect to a partner who isn't Jewish, right? It would be like I have friends who are like professional musicians, and I feel like they could never date someone who like didn't understand music, at least in some way. And I think as I've seen a lot of my friends be in different types of relationships and partnerships, I like understand a little bit more. I think finding someone you love is really hard. And the more the Jewish community can do to encourage conversions, the more that we make Judaism a live and vibrant option, um, the more we stand a chance for being relevant to our grandkids. I also feel that if you're coming to Amichai, right, you're saying, I want this rabbi who's, he's an amazing person. He's so engaging and so dynamic. And you're saying, I want you to do my, my, my marriage. I'm not marrying a Jewish person, but we both want this experience. And, and we both want this. Like, to me, I'm saying, why are we turning away people who want to have a Jewish marriage and who might not convert might not but they want to be a part of a synagogue like i think the idea that we are not open to these people who who want involvement in judaism and we're not accommodating to them in any way is really sad and i think when we're we're so we we are so obsessed with jewish continuity Mm -hmm. why not embrace these people who actually want to be part of judaism and you're going to say well why don't they study talmud and convert it will shock you i'm shocked already i have no idea what he's going to say to hear uh that i feel very differently than both of you. Look, I, I have um, I have members of my family uh, who are who are intermarried, who I who I love dearly, as I love their spouses, um, and I think that we should definitely be doing everything we can to welcome in everyone who wants to join the fold. And I also think that we should be doing everything we can to make intermarried families feel comfortable uh, in our communities and and an integral part. Uh, but that's not what marriage is about. And and Cher, I'm sorry, I don't see marriage as as a like a personal choice as a kind of, oh, well, you know, I'm Jewish, like I'm a musician. Uh, to me, it's not about this individualistic viewpoint. It's about- Every one of us is a Jew by choice today. Uh, that's right. But I'm, I mean, to me, what marriage is, it, it really is a consecration in the eyes of God. It, it is a joining into a covenant. Um, mm. And to me, that it's not a civil 
you know, sermon, you know, kind of revolving around love. It is a, a commitment to peoplehood uh, and that simply cannot be squared. Uh, I mean, from, from the halachic argument to the, to the kind of, you know, national argument, I just don't think that there ever is or should be a way for that to be condoned. Well, I think, I mean, that's, I mean, when Stephanie was talking about having options for people, like for me, the Jewish ceremony of marriage is something that feels different. I mean, I don't know that I would see, I can't imagine seeing an interfaith wedding ceremony as a Jewish wedding, like, because. But he's not performing, he's performing a Jewish wedding because right. he's a rabbi, right? right? He's not, I don't know that <sighs> yeah. he's standing there with so, some priest. This is also a larger problem here. So, so if he's so the doing friend... the whole thing with all the bracho, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that to me, it just doesn't, I think I'm, I'm still enough rooted. I mean, there's like halachically that, that doesn't work. Um, kind of, oh kind God, of explicitly. We're going to so. get so many letters about this. But we'll get Amakai on. We we'll should. talk it'll to him be, about what he does. Yeah, great. But look, we, ha- do we have our special wedding episode coming up right yes. before we Steph's do, wedding. Duo Dickinson, who's, who's a, 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 an evangelical uh, you know, light yeah. unto the nations and a friend of this podcast, wrote a very beautiful essay the other week saying that part of what he's noticing in, in this you know wedding season mm-hmm. is how uh, much really God has been disinvited uh, from from the weddings of younger people that he's mm. seeing. It's, you know, kind of like, hey, a friend of the bride and the groom is officiating. And even if it's, you know, a, a, a clergy member, it's sort of like, we're just going to keep this. It's like, hey, you write your own vows and talk about how much right. you love each other. And like, we'll keep the quote unquote religious stuff and the, and the sermon stuff very, very mm-hmm. short and very, very light. To me, that's that's not what it. Yeah, but ought if you talk about. about God at no other point in your life, it feels a little forced to like smuggle it into your wedding that's, ceremony. I agree. That's right. And is that part of the problem, Leo? It is a huge part of the problem. So you're saying God does not get a plus one at these weddings? I am saying God is seated at table fourteen. The shechina, all the shechina the way. gets left out. The shechina <laughs> is like all the way by the door with like mom's colleague from meal. work or like the the hygienist uh, from the dentist's office. Our Jewish guest this week is Jamie Kerchik, a journalist and foreign correspondent based in Washington. We've had him on the show before. He's been great. Um, And now he's back to discuss his first book, The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. Jamie, I was lucky enough to see you last night at the 92nd Street Y in conversation with Tablet's editor, Alana Newhouse. It was a fascinating discussion, but also super dark. Mm. Will you tell us what you mean by The End of Europe? Well, it's the end of uh, Europe as we've come to know it, which is really a place of peace and uh, social harmony and economic prosperity. And I see all these nasty traditions that we associate with Europe's past coming back, whether it's uh, Russian aggression, uh, whether it is anti-Semitism, populism, xenophobia, and really the disintegration of the transatlantic alliance with the United States, which was something that I didn't really anticipate writing in the book, but when Donald Trump came along, uh, is really now a prospect. Uh, Western European countries have been getting a lot of attention recently for the rise of populism, Donald Trump, et cetera. But I mean, you started writing this book back in 2015, and you Mm. were looking at countries like Hungary and Viktor Orban or Poland. Do you think the trends that we've seen there are carrying over to Western Europe? Or do you think what's happening in the UK is distinctly different than what's happening in Hungary? I think there are many similarities. And I think in Hungary, actually, uh, we excerpted the chapter on Hungary on tablet a couple weeks ago. Um, Check it out. Yeah. And 
I remember covering Hungary around like 2012 and Viktor Orban had recently come into power and was sort of implementing these illiberal policies, you know, uh, re reducing checks and balances, moving the country into what he would later call uh, an illiberal state. And people kind of looked at it from Western Europe as this kind of strange, like parochial Eastern European thing. It's this small country with a weird language that no one speaks. And it's the Hungarians. And they were, you know, they, they have a history of fascism, and they allied with the Nazis, and they've never really gotten over it, and yada, yada, yada. And now, seven years later, it's hard not to look at Viktor Orban as being really ahead of the curve. And ahead really, of his time. Ahead of his time, really having put his finger to the wind, and sensing that there was something afoot in the West um, and so he's now really one of the more popular leaders in Europe. I don't think that's anything that anyone would have anticipated in 2012 or 2011. Also, what I don't think anyone would have anticipated is sort of the rewriting, you call it, I think, the conscious rewriting yes. of history that's happening in a lot of European countries, right. specifically Hungary. Hungary. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with the Holocaust Memorial um, in Hungary? Yeah, so in 2014, the government unveiled, under cover of night, secretly, because they knew it would be very controversial, uh, a monument called the Memorial to the Victims of the German Occupation, uh, which is a little strange because Hungary was allied with Nazi Germany during World War II, and the Hungarians assisted in the deportation of about half a million Jews to Auschwitz in what was the swiftest murder of the Holocaust um, that took place in about three weeks. And the, the memorial depicts an angel who represents the nation of Hungary being attacked by the German Imperial Eagle. So you look at this and you basically think that the nation of Hungary was this innocent victim of the Nazis, when obviously the truth is totally different, where it was primarily the Jews, Hungarian Jews who were the victims, not the nation of Hungary, certainly. And it was Hungarians who were assisting the Nazis um, in, the, in, the, in their deportation. So it's a complete and utter you know, perversion of history, but it's right there in Budapest, right in the center of the city. So it's not even and wiping out crimes against Jews. It's wiping out sort of the Jews entirely. They, yeah, Any mention yeah of there's no mention of Jews in the memorial. I, yeah. And I feel like in the communist era, that actually was the case in a yes. lot of places in Europe. It was Which is this so odd that you have this right-wing government that claims to be, you know, very anti-communist and we were anti-communist during during that period of time, and yet here they are adopting, in some sense, an element of the communist rewriting of the Holocaust. So can you tell us a little bit about why suddenly countries' World War II history is now... Well, because it can be used uh, for political purposes. And so if you look at Russia, Russia is really rewriting the history of World War II so they can present themselves as, you know, the great heroes of World War II. And obviously they were eventually on the right side, but there was this little two-year two period that they don't like to talk about where they allied with Nazi Germany and carved up Eastern Europe. And that's been rewritten out of the history books. And so when you saw them invading Ukraine, occupying Crimea, they would appeal to the great patriotic war and the role that they played in it. And you've even heard recently with Donald Trump, there are people now saying, well, I mean, Sean Hannity was even saying Russia was our ally in World War II. Why shouldn't we be friends with the Russians again? And so they're using this in a very cynical way. And I think if you want to understand the power of history, look at a country like Germany, which has come to terms with its past better than any country in the world. I think anyone who visits Berlin or Germany and you walk the streets and you can't, you know, you can't walk 100 yards without yeah, encountering. you can't escape it. You can't escape it. And the Germans have been very good about this. And I think every country, including our own, could learn something from Germany about how to confront your past. 
The result of this is that no one really fears Germany today. It's not a militaristic power. Mm. Um, it's widely, I think it's the most widely admired country in the world, according to BBC poll. None of its neighbors fear it. Compared to Russia, which also committed horrible atrocities, invaded its neighbors, much like Germany did, and hasn't come to terms with that history. In fact, quite the opposite. They are now venerating people like Joseph Stalin. White, strong leader. Strong leader, built the country, and they're whitewashing the gulag. I mean, children in Russia don't learn about these things. And look at Russia's neighbors. There's not a single neighbor of Russia who doesn't live in fear. And so I think this can show you the power of history and the power of narratives and how important it is that countries honestly confront their history because it'll have an effect on their you know, their political dispensation and how they how they rule, how they treat their citizens, how they view their their neighbors and their place in the world. In in a lot of these countries, anti-Semitism is part of the equation, right? Yeah. Um, interesting story to give you an example of this anti-Semitism problem. I mean, Arta, which is the uh, sort of French-German public broadcasting conglomerate, had commissioned a documentary on anti-Semitism in Europe and then decided not to air it because it was too uh, controversial, we'll say. Huh. Um, it would have, have offended some communities in Europe is how I think it was explained or but whatnot. That's but, right. Because so that's, of the anti-Semitism it showed? Yeah, and I think because it was so prevalent in Islamic communities that this was not deemed politically correct. Um, they may, I haven't followed the latest developments. There was a huge scandal, and they may actually now be showing it, but there, the, the decision was taken not to show this. Now as ever, canary in the coal mine. Yeah. And what does this mean for us? Are the winds coming to us? And like, how do we, how do we react? To, what does it mean for the United States when there's no Europe? I am seeing similarities in the kind of polarization in Europe and the extremism, the kind of like Weimarization taking place in our country where you have, it seems the extremes are being emboldened. And so you see that everywhere from, you know, uh, trying to shut down a performance at Shakespeare in the Park that you don't like on the right to on the left, this just insanity on college campuses and this, you know, identity politics nonsense. Linda Sarsour, who I just wrote about in my last uh, tablet piece and it just seems that you know it's the extremes that are getting emboldened and the center ground is losing and that you know that's kind of a european phenomenon as well so, so where do we go from here i mean what do we take like i your book presents all these different cases of what's happening but what is there anything any silver lining anything we can sort of c constructively do to to help are we just doomed well i mean uh, certainly, I mean, getting engaged, getting involved, uh, reading the news. You Stephanie know, got engaged. I don't know. She's getting married. <laughs> what else can I do? No, I mean, uh, <laughs> like practically, I mean, this isn't like the Cold War, right? When we had like the Marshall Plan and we had like a military confrontation on the European continent and people joined the military. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's a different situation that we're in. There's different threats. There's different problems. We've already done um, our part. We've taken Nigel Farage to Fox News. It's yeah. fine, right? So, We've taken them off their hands. Now? We're just, it's done? You're no, so, no, no, no. There's so many. <laughs> there's definitely silver linings. Like the last chapter is about Ukraine, which is a very inspiring place. It's the only country where anyone's died under the EU flag, actually, in 2014 during the Maidan protests. So, you know, it to me, that was very meaningful that you would see people actually putting their lives on the line for Europe, for this with, with idea. With no help from us. And with no help from us. should be said. And, you know, for to join an, an institution that the Brits voluntarily left. 
Jamie, thank you so much for being with us. Um, listeners can get his book, The End of Europe. Listeners wherever. should pause right now. Yeah, just they get, should go on Amazon yeah, get right it. now. It's, you know, it's a sobering book. but really fascinating and smart If take. you want to help and Europe, this is the book you would read on the beach this summer. Yeah, it'll, yeah. This is your first step towards redemption. Thank you very much for having me. You killed your European son. You spit on those under 21. But now your blue cars are gone, you better sit so long. Hey, hey, bye, bye, bye. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Gentile of the Week is comedian, writer, director, and producer Nagin Farsad, author of How to Make White People Laugh, a memoir meets social justice comedy manifesto. She's also the host of Fake the Nation, a political comedy roundtable podcast. Early listeners of our show may remember Nagin, who was a guest back in September 2015 when she was suing the MTA after they pulled ads for her documentary, The Muslims Are Coming. The lawsuit was ultimately successful. Yes. And I think of you every time, because sometimes the ads stay up for a really long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just saw an ad that said... The ugly truth about Muslims, they have great frittata recipes. Yeah. And I was like, go again. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's like eight, nine months later or something. That's the best because yeah. you buy an ad and then like it stays for years because yeah. no one ever changes them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Because the subways never come. I mean, it's just like you just wait for that one train. And you're just and... like staring at messaging That's that right. gives you positive feelings about Muslims. Yay. See how that works. 
so, so we talked in September 2015, which is like light years it feels, ago. I mean, we were in, young and innocent then. Nothing happened since then. <laughs> You're like, we're what's all been, good. What's we're been cool. going on? <laughs> so it's so it's November. On? So it's November 8th around 10 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> where where are you, McGee? Oh my! The funny thing is, I was doing a comedy show, and so I was just doing some stand up or whatever. And then we were doing some kind of like roundtable things with comedians, and they kept interrupting to give state by state returns. Right, like that. They, they would do oh a God. ding, and then everyone would. <laughs> it's the and saddest like, fucking so, show in yeah, history. No, it was the, because like literally the at the end, people were like, "Well, that's our show for tonight." <laughs> Thanks so much for coming out. It like was like everyone was like catatonic and didn't know what to do with themselves. So another news: the yeah. bar has never sold yeah, so much liquor that, that, in that, their history. That's two drink minimum. Totally not necessary. Exactly. 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 So at, when we last spoke, it was sort of a, a a slightly inhospitable time to be a Muslim comedian. Uh huh. What I mean, obviously, we're in a much different situation yeah. now. Is there any ways in which Trump has made it? better or worse i mean how how has it well it's funny because i think in general for comedians people are like oh this is a great time for comedy like so much material so much material and i actually don't feel that way at all i feel like you know in in good times it already felt like you know this is tough or whatever um and then after he was elected it felt like you finish a marathon and that's quite a feat and then you're told to run four more marathons in a row um but wearing like a lead jacket everything just is is more polarized uh i would prefer it to be more nuanced uh for comedy as opposed to this brashness you know but we've done like some interesting things as a part of a uh, fake the nation we launched a website called donnytwimp.com um which is an exhaustive database of alternative names for donny you know we want to like make it possible for people never to actually say his name and so what's you your can- favorite Oh, I mean, uh, I don't know. There's like simple ones that I really love, like Orange 45. Um, I personally like Cheeto Benito. Cheeto Benito is like, uh, that's stuff. on the database. Uh, and so, and, and we take r- submissions. So if you have yeah. your own favorite, um, write in uh, at DonnieTwim.com. We're launching something called the um, Boycott Bigotry Campaign, where we're targeting his golf courses in Florida, where we're putting up ads that are like the Trump International golf course because why not golf with a racist uh and so we're trying to kind of remind people um a that there's a conflict of interest in giving money to these properties um and b uh that you're giving money to a big old bigot yeah do you feel like there's any joke now that things are kind of more serious Mm -hmm. and people feel actually more afraid are there things that you find less funny that you don't want to joke about as much or jokes that you maybe don't want to tell in the same way? I mean, in general, like I feel like just direct jokes about the administration are not as funny because when once something happens, it immediately feels hack. Like it immediately feels like there's nothing I can do. Like how how do you even make fun of this, right? Exactly. There's nothing I can do. You're really incompetent and you have a small penis. Good night, everyone. (laughs) That's not comedy. (laughs) Exactly. So it's you're just sort of repeating like the statements that have already been made. Factor, you know, you're just like repeating facts from the event and then. 
then there's no like joke on it. So I think it's a real figuring out angles is is the real challenge. Have you have you had a life since November? Because it seems that yeah, you seem super busy. So much of this can like <laughs> consume <laughs> you completely. Like, have you done anything that's not related to this? Um, yeah, I think in the beginning I was really consumed, and I it. Honestly, like I think it affected my blood pressure. I <laughs> think, like you know what I mean. I got I got acne. Like I don't know. Like things happened to me physically um, because I was just too involved in the news. Um, and you know, like b- you know, being in the media world, you sort of have to be involved in the news. You can't ignore it. Um, and so, like professionally, I had to like read the news. So like now, it's a question of like. How do I stay involved while also, you know, taking my dog for a walk and like not thinking about Donnie for five minutes? You know what I mean? Um, So that I think is like a challenge for everybody. So your book, which came out last year, How to Make White People Laugh, um, sort of based on the fact that white people control a lot of things in this country and that making them laugh is sort of a way to get through to them. Yeah. I is have that, a list of things that they control. Yeah, what do they control? Because some control, of it, I was like, well, I, white we, people? We Jews control yeah, the media like, and the, the banks. Media. What, okay. what are the rest of the whites control? I will, I Golf, will give I you the space. Yeah. I feel like white people control space. Um, like outer space. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay. I was like, are you looking at me like cabinets? Personal, um, personal space. Um, also personal space. So uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson is a huge kind of deflection of the truth. Tokenism. That's right. Um, <laughs> and uh, they control the government. Um, they control um, printer ink cartridges, which like never last more than Such like five racket, minutes. That industry. Total racket. Um, the breeding of small dogs that they basically never can breathe like what's that, that doesn't seem right to me mark is not here for this okay. <laughs> he has a small dog's no, issue he's, he's racist against against, against his, what he calls gourmet dogs, gourmet dogs which sounds like a dog you would eat which i don't like but not designer yeah, bes- bespoke dogs no, he called it gourmet dogs yeah designer yeah dogs. got you um yeah so there's a lot of things that they control game of thrones i think we can agree on a lot of hbo's programming um but yeah so i my feeling is that if we keep them like laughing and lubed up then they'll start fewer wars <laughs> <laughs> and so i think you also have a question for us as Mark would put it, your certified expert panel of Jews, of which I am now. I was really quickly certified right before the show started. Ordained. Yeah, ordained. ordained. (laughs) We got a rabbi outside. That's true. (laughs) Yeah, okay, so, like, so here's my question for you guys. Um, Do American Jews feel like they're kind of, like, veterans of, you know, religious oppression? Uh, And, like, what... What does that mean for their relationship with like more newly oppressed religious groups? <laughs> like, you know, as as the OG of that. Oh, the OTOG. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go first. Um, I think the answer that I would give is not enough. Like one thing that drives me absolutely crazy and people are like, oh, you with your white privilege, like really white privilege. You know, tell that to my grandfather's family. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, wait, you can't. Because they're all fucking murdered in Auschwitz. So I kind of sit this one out. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know. I think a lot of Jews recently feel really uncomfortable with giving voice to feeling like they're victims still of oppression because we sense that there's other like way more vulnerable people in the country right now. And and we have well, I think when you have economic success in a sense of political power, you don't feel 
like you can claim oppression. And that's what's so weird about anti-Semitism is that I think so much bigotry around groups, and we've seen this manifest in Islamophobia, it's in racism and so many things, focus on like uh, calls of inferiority, right? Like these groups are like ethnic or racist identities. Also like these groups are stupid or they're backwards or whatever. And what's so weird about anti-Semitism is that it's about Jewish superiority. Like Jews are powerful. Jews are successful. We should be afraid of them. Like insidious about them. Right. And so, so whereas for a lot of groups facing bigotry, the idea is like feel pride and like become economically stable. And that's how you escape the stereotypes for Jews. We recognize that by being economically stable and powerful, we're like, fulfilling and reconfirming Jewish bigotry. So there's no real way for Jews to feel like we've escaped the charges of anti-Semitism. And I think that puts us in this constantly insecure and then feeling bad about that insecurity. So it's complicated. It's a lot of guilt. Um, One of the interesting things I found, well, this this thing kind of happened to me recently where um, I was on MSNBC because I'm the voice of a generation. And I was there talking about the president. And um, after the show, someone had tweeted at me. Who you called what, by the way, on there? Who I called um, popular vote losing minority president Donnie Twimp. A mouthful, but one that I stand by. Um, And uh, now now I think we need to constantly add that he's under criminal investigation, which I think is a fun one. Um, so I, so after the show, someone tweeted at me, like at Nagin Farsad is clearly the Jewish nerd on the panel. Um, and I was actually kind of flattered cause I felt like it was an upgrade, but, um, they were like, I was like, no, actually I'm the Muslim nerd on the panel. And then they wrote back, no, you're clearly a Jewy McJew face. And I just <laughs> thought it was so funny that they insisted that I be Jewish. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, I'm sorry. I took your anti-Semitism away from me, but I feel like Islamophobia is a really good substitute. Yeah, it's exactly yeah. right. You know, most most bigots are not as as particular. You know what I yeah. mean? They're Islamophobia is like exclusive. is like the equal or the sweet and low for anti-Semitism. Like <laughs> you don't want the full <laughs> calorie count of hating Jews. You could just <laughs> right, right, right. No, exactly. It's not like stevia in the raw. Yeah, that's, that's right. something else. <laughs> so put, yeah, so that kind of thing. And then and then one other thing from the events of last week that I found interesting in terms of like whether or not we all see each other in the same boat is. Is um, this thing that happened with Bill Maher, uh, where he used the N word on a show, and then he spent the entire next episode, like m- much of the next episode, basically apologizing and then being grilled by uh, Michael Eric Dyson and then also by Ice Cube, Ice Cube yeah, the, um, a, a voice of a generation, a voice of a generation uh, who never ages. Um, he looked great. Uh, like so, he you know so there there was this thing where like he really took a moment to apologize to let all of the ideas be heard on why it was troubling and that same moment is never taken when it comes to Muslims he just says crazy things about Muslims basically every week and very very few people take him to task there's no apologies about you know because I think there's something about Islamophobia that it's like just still it's just kind of still acceptable. You know, it's so like it, right now, it's like the popular. We know a really great person. Yeah, like if you went on, what, what, yeah, what would you say? I, you know, I mean, it's funny. Like I I, I, I think about that sometimes. Uh, and I think that I would just say, I think 
what you mean to say is that um, we we went and started a needless war in the Middle East, which left this vacuum that created like uh, these fringe groups. And um, and instead of like nation building, we let those things fester. Um, and that created an anti-American sentiment um, that has led to terrorism. And that's too long to say it doesn't fit on a t-shirt it's, it's HBO, and so you, you know? are saying yeah so you're just saying calling that islam and that i think is just lazy is what i would probably say nagin farsad thank you so much people can find you on twitter and call you a jew at at nagin yeah. farsad <laughs> thanks for coming back it's always great to have you thanks so much for having me guys and you're like such a jew <laughs> i've been living in new york long enough i mean it's just shit. osmosis at this point <laughs> I throw bread at teammate, make it cash to split it. I take what you got to give, cause I got to live. The last hour, I bet your ass is wax sour. Might act up, but I still can pass hour. I'm using new ways to try to reach these better days. Instead of trying to take you under, I just make you wonder. I still fast, makes a lot, and pays the cot. I didn't make hot yet, but that's my next project. Living two lives, one eternal, one with true lies. Keeping a hope. Guys, we got a lot of mail in response to our crossover episode with Lexicon Valley last week. And um, a few of it was in response to specific items. And a few of it was just sharing stories about people's own um, sort of adventures and experiences with with and talking Jewish, Jewish and talking Jewish. Um, so I'm going to read right. a few of them. This is from Miriam Ross, who actually wrote in to say that she shares a birthday with Israel and Hitler. With wait, how does she? Hold on, let me do that again. With Israel and Hitler, <laughs> what's although Israel was not born okay, on, fine, fine. On May, right. in April. Is it was Yomat Ma'ut ever overlap with four twenty? I mean, unless it's like Hitler's Hebrew okay, birthday, right, which is again. I don't know Yud Zayin Be Er or something. Do you think like anyone that? has ever calculated Hitler's Hebrew birthday? Oh, Definitely. I'm, I'm sure there's a community somewhere. All right, hey J Crew, I'm writing in after your latest episode with a funny story about my family's Yiddish vocab. My mom was born in Berlin, and she taught my brother and me German growing up. At least that's what I thought it was. Turns out some of it was Yiddish. I think you mentioned people using Yiddish as an affectionate imitation of their parents, but for a long time, I thought my mom's Yiddish-inflected German was the regular language. In particular, I remember the day in Hebrew school when I heard one of my classmates' parents say punim, the beginning of a mystery. I was thinking, does she speak German too? How did I not know? I also want to ask if Vildechaya, Yiddish for wild beasts, is a thing in the wider Jewish community. It happens to be my dad's favorite ironic way of referring to my friends. <laughs> Yours, Miriam. I love that, like, thinking German is is Yiddish. That's well, so Well, I feel like it also crosses over the other way. I had a German friend in college who would talk about how, like, the old Jewish professors would always, like, try and kibitz with him in Yiddish. <laughs> and he would just, like, awkwardly be like, I don't understand you. It's like not the same language. But points to the Vildechaya, that just makes me think of my of some old great aunt yelling at like five-year-olds running around. That's right. Yeah, send us your Vildechaya story. But I love everyone. this. As, as Goebbels would always say, I'm feeling very verklempt today. <laughs> we also got a lot of letters about the phrase in the freezer, which on, was On the in, other end of the juice. Yeah, yes. seriously, which was in the yeshiva song um, John played. And we got a letter from everyone from our, our listener, Tevi Troy, to a great letter from Chaim Yankel, which I... Love. Yankel and Lakewood represent. Yep. Hey, Y crew. We're the Y crew now. I like that. See, that's that's, yeah. that's authentic. As a black Some jacket, kosher shit. As a black jacket, white shirt, black hat wearing Lakewooder, and a huge unorthodox fan. The first thing I do on Thursday morning upon waking up is refresh my feed for the new episode. Let me correct your mistake. The freezer has nothing to do with Yiddish. A little background is in order. 90% of yeshiva slash Lakewood type boys do not date until they have arrived at the Lakewood yeshiva at the age of 23. For their first semester there, there is a two-month break-in period in which they cannot still yet date, allowing them to settle into the rhythm and pace of their new environment. 
That period is affectionately called the freezer. There are two semesters, summer and winter. The freezer opening of the winter semester coincides with Tu B'Shvat. Now go back and listen to Abe Rotenberg's beloved Yeshivish Ried song that you played, and it will make sense. Can I just say, I love that we got so many letters about this, because I was listening to this episode in my kitchen, cooking for Shabbos, and I was like, oh my god, the freezer, that's that thing where you can't date, and... How many of our listeners live in Lakewood? Because it has to be a lot of them. And I love that. No, it's amazing. And the idea that in the song he was saying, the Shadchan called, I'm out of the, fr- or I'm still in the freezer. I'm not in the freezer I, I, anymore. No, I'm out of the freezer. He's out of the freezer yeah. so he can date. That's so yeah. So if anyone in Lakewood wants to put uh, together a very special live and orthodox episode out of the freezer, we're, we're totally game. And we have one more letter. Hi, Tablet Team. So, true story. I literally just started listening to the podcast this week for the first time after hearing the crossover Lexicon Valley episode, and I went back to listen to last week's episode. Anyway, the Mendel story struck quite the chord. That's my sister's baby's Hebrew name, which is actually Yiddish. My Hebrew name is Razel, Yiddish for Rose, named after my great-grandma Rose. On my first day of kindergarten at Solomon Schechter back in the mid-80s, I was sent home with a note to my parents saying something to the effect of, Dear parents, as you may or may not know, Razel is Yiddish and therefore not a Hebrew name. Moving forward, we will be calling your daughter Shoshana. Naturally, my parents were livid. I believe they literally needed to get a letter from the rabbi who had done my naming, granting permission to move forward with Razel as opposed to the arbitrarily assigned alternative. Incidentally, when my brother started kindergarten three years later, they didn't raise any issue with his Hebrew name, Mendel. Anyway, Mazel Tov on the birth of your nephew. Looking forward to becoming a regular listener. Best, Robin Agin. Dear yeah. Solomon Schechter Schools, this is why you no longer exist. <laughs> but like the idea of naming someone Shoshana is to me just like so funny. And it's like, we will give you the most Jewish name in our conception of Jewishness. Or that they just made up a name. Dear parents, I'm sorry. Yeah. Your kid's name is not what we will call them. We are going to call them something completely else. Dear day school, instead of checks, I will now be paying in <laughs> sandwiches. <laughs> Fuck you. Shoshana sandwiches. <laughs> Next week is camp week. We're going to be tackling that holy Jewish ritual, summer camp. Send us your stories this week if you want to be included. Even better, record a voice note and send it to us. We've already gotten some great notes, and one of our best ones is from our old friend Sippy Turner in Phoenix. She writes, OMG, did you say summer camp? Ian and I met in summer camp. It was the summer of 88, Honesdale, Pennsylvania, at a leadership training seminar. I was 17, a camper, and had just finished my junior year in high school. Ian was 21 and on staff at the camp. It was a little bit of a scandal at the time, but so be it. We were married four years later. Fast forward several years, and all three of our kids have have been going to summer camp in Sugar Grove, Pennsylvania for years, first as campers and then as staff. Sending them to Camp Stone was the best thing we've done for them. They've learned independence and leadership, and hopefully they've made lifelong friends. And who knows? Maybe they've met their Beshert there as well. That reminds me of the story of the family of four, four kids who all met their spouses at summer camp. I think it was Camp Moshava in Ontario. Jewish so, summer camp, the answer to intermarriage. Exactly. The, the, the key to Jewish continuity. So send us your camp memories. What was your craziest color war breakout? Did you have your first kiss there? Or did you go to an all-girls camp like me? Maybe you had your first kiss there. Write to us on unorthodox at tabletmag.com. And remember to go to iTunes, subscribe, and rate us. And while you're at it, subscribe to our newsletter at tabletmag.com slash unorthodox or send an email asking for it to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. It's time for Mazel Tov's. We've got one from listener Kate Sloat, who wants to offer a mazel tov to her friend Rivka, who just officially immigrated and became an Israeli citizen. Hey, mazel tov to Rivka. Kate says Rivka listens to the show sometimes, so she might hear this. <laughs> Shira? Um, my mazel tov this week goes to my old college roommate, John Guy Jap, who I just saw uh, at Harvard, where she's been leading a tour of... So she's 
from Kachin, northern Burma, Christian persecuted minority. Um, she was the only Judaic studies major our year at Yale. She learned Hebrew. She wrote her senior thesis on Mordechai Kaplan and Jacob Klatskin, translated original Hebrew documents, went back to Burma for a year to like fight for the Kachin people. She's leading Kachin teenagers from all over the country on a crazy five-day trip to college campuses to convince them to apply to college. She's the coolest person I know, and she just got an NSF grant that's going to fund her for the next three years that they give out to scientists because she's a political scientist and political scientists never get this. It always goes to like chemistry people to fund her for three years of doing more research um, with the Kachin army in Burma. So, Chang'ai, you're the coolest person ever and a huge mazel tov. I want an NSFW grant. <laughs> I, think, I think we're going to get one after this grant. show. I have a mazel tov to my two favorite teens, Ashley and Frankie, who graduated high school last week. They're both headed to college in California and I am extremely jealous. Snap me. I'm kind of too. Are you? Yeah. They can go hang out with Mark. I'd like to go to California. (laughs) I know. Like, and to be starting college now, how, I mean, obviously there's a lot going on in college, but. What what fun it is to be starting college (laughs) now. In California. For for a Jew in America. (laughs) Uh, I, I have a very special Mazel Tov uh, with, with, with a tune at the end. Uh, To Nechi Nech, the greatest Israeli rapper of all time who dropped his fourth album this week and is an amazing talent that y'all should really be listening to. And so, take us away, Nechi Nech. That's it for today, guys. Mark will be back next week to bring our testosterone levels uh, up to where they up to where they should be. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson and produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Talushkin, who rocked it today. Rabbinic supervision by Joseph Talushkin, duh. Kosher slaughtering by my cat, Cat Stevens. Amy Resnikoff gives the best presents. Find Tablet Magazine on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at, at @tabletmag. Our music is by Golem. We record in Argo Studios, which is always turned up to 11. We're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Hugs and knishes, as Aunt Gail says. Hugs and knishes.